0: It's about more than just research, it's about community too, What's right? new in the community? What's going on this weekend? The last time we met, we talked to...
1: Well, last time I talked to the people from downtown.
0: What was the last movie you went to? Miguel, what's new, Miguel, what's new in the community? Have you gotten any feedback about the Twitter feed? First of
1: all, for the people who contact us on Twitter...
0: ...about a certain research...
1: Can you tell me more? Well, depends who you talk to, if you talk to the people from the board. Why what
0: about this thing? did the yogurt go to the art hey. museum? Did you see in the news? To Welcome to the Community
1: Board Podcast with your host, Miguel Valdez. And today I have a guest, a special guest, my friend, Megan Elise, who I just find out her last name, Elise, doesn't have a real background. Okay. Maybe a made-up last name. Well,
0: it's uh, so. What happened was, it's uh, what well, it used to be my middle name. So um, when I was uh, in grad school for professional reasons, I changed my name because I'd already published under Megan Elise, uh, and my middle name became my last name. And because I'm not sure that my parents had any precedent for Elise, I think they just think thought it sounded nice, and that made it my middle name. Uh, I now have a, a last name with, with no real pedigree. Uh, it doesn't come from anywhere that I'm aware of. I don't know why it's spelled with a Y. Uh, it is. Uh, but it does make me very uh, easy to find on the Internet. Right? If you Google Megan Elise, I am number one. Right. Great. So if only I'd been, you know, Nancy Jones, you'd have to work pretty hard to find me. But
1: That's good. Megan, you work for the bioethics department at Mayo Clinic. What does the bioethics does in an institution like Mayo Clinic?
0: Mm -hmm. So bioethics is a little bit of sort of a collective term that we use for uh, research and implementation studies that look at the relationship, and especially sort of the moral uh, relationship between technology and medicine and humanity and society. And it's something that goes back a really long time. You know, since we've had technology, we've had questions about what's the appropriate relationship between technology and society. But I think that uh, especially when, you know, medicine became more and more sort of technologically sophisticated, these conversations got more and more complicated, right? And so now we have a lot of questions about, you know, we now have the technology to keep humans breathing or to keep their hearts beating for uh, very long periods of time, but all of a sudden now we have questions of how long is long enough? How long is too long? Who is the appropriate person to make that decision? And at the opposite end of life, we have questions about, you know, we can get so much information about a pregnancy now. We can do uh, gene testing on that pregnancy and find out whether that fetus or that pregnancy is affected by uh, any number of genetic conditions. But again, then we have the questions of what level of testing is appropriate, how much say should the mother have, and whether she wants that information, and is it fair that you know some mothers in some pregnancies have access to that technology and others don't? And so, those are the kinds of questions that we really grapple with uh, in bioethics, is to really help both ourselves and our communities and our clinical partners. Uh try to understand what are the ethical underpinnings of those questions. Who are the voices that need to be included when we discuss those questions, and what can we really do to make uh, quality of life and quality of medical care better and more just for the maximum number of people?
1: Do you remember when the finally they did the genome
0: the whole genome yeah, yeah. where were you? Oh gosh, are you trying to ask for my age, Miguel? Because <laughs> I'm not sure that that's fair. <laughs> uh, God,
1: I was still in school. Um, when was it around
0: 2002, It was a little earlier than that, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I would. I would have still been in school. I can remember when the how, Berlin Wall fell, s- but I can't remember where I was. the
1: uh, Moving forward after that.
0: Yeah, and so I think that people were a little bit shocked because it took so much work to get that first draft of the human genome. Uh, And there was a huge coalition, both a private coalition and a public coalition. Governments all around the world, an incredible investment, and it still took so long because they were literally building the technology they needed to do the sequence as they did the sequence. And so uh, it was a little like building a scaffolding for a skyscraper while you're standing on the platform of the scaffolding. And so I think that people were a little bit surprised when having done all that work and taken so long that once we got it, it really just took off. Um, And so we've seen really incredible advancements in our understanding of the genome since then, in our ability to connect... Uh, certain aspects of human uh, biology to its genetic origins. Certainly our understanding of sort of animal and plant and natural um, genomics has exploded. And, uh, you know, we have made progress, although I think maybe not as much progress as some people were hoping for in using genomic technologies to address Uh, sort of urgent health problems, and especially widespread health problems.
1: And another part of your role also in Mayo Clinic is within the Department of...
0: um, Obstetrics and Gynecology.
1: Yes. What is the obstetrics for or friends who at least you know, may be familiar with that.
0: Mm. Yeah, so obstetrics and gynecology is uh, basically a reproductive health department. So obstetrics would be um, the medical treatment of women who are pregnant or hoping to get pregnant, uh, and that includes a department called maternal-fetal medicine, which is for pregnancies which are considered to be at risk um, of something. And so that would include, for instance, our fetal surgery department. Gynecology is the clinical treatment of the um, of the human female reproductive system. So, ovarian cancer, for instance, or any kind of that kind of gynecological health would fall into the gynecology department.
1: Okay. And you also are a researcher. And today, um, you're going to be sharing with us some uh, study that you're working on, a research study you're Mm -hmm. conducting.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, What is that about?
0: Yeah, so we received a grant, a seed grant, from the Office of Health Disparities Research here at Mayo Clinic. And the Office of Health Disparities Research really looks to try and provide initial seed funding to researchers who would like to build larger studies around issues of health disparities uh, in healthcare. And so we're working with Dr. Elizabeth Stewart, uh, who is the chair of the Reproductive Endocrinology Department here and Dr. Joy Balsberry, who is the director of the Community Engaged Research Project, somebody I'm sure you're familiar with. And uh, we're looking at, so uh, there's a condition, a gynecological condition known as uterine fibroids. And uh, it affects uh, over a quarter of women overall, although many women don't know that they are affected by uterine fibroids because they don't, come to a level of what we would call symptomatic. But those who do become symptomatic can have very serious uh, symptoms. Uh, early age? It, it varies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's obviously uh, post-puberty, so it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a menstrual um, condition. Uh, but we've talked to women who've been diagnosed at a variety of ages, uh, and I think that Part of the reason for that is that a lot of women, as I said, may be affected by fibroids, but don't actually know that they're affected uh, and may think of the symptoms of fibroids as being just sort of a a slightly worse than normal symptom of of a menstrual cycle or of other reproductive um, or sexual health issues. Uh, And so those are women who might not receive a diagnosis because they don't have those conversations with their doctors until later in life.
1: And and there is any disparities among women?
0: Yeah, so the condition, as I said, uh, does affect uh, all of the female population, but it does seem to be uh, higher rates among women of African descent. Uh, And so I I think it occurs in women of African descent more often, but it's also shown to be more serious. And so even if you have... um, a woman from a different ethnic background, an African-American woman or an African uh, woman, then you would expect to see, based on the the overall disease course, much more serious bleeding, for instance, larger um, tumors in the African-American than in a woman from another ethnic background. The other thing that we have seen historically is that um, you know, certainly before sort of more modern approaches to the treatment of uterine fibroids, one of the most common, uh, approaches was simply to do a hysterectomy, which is to say to just remove the uterus and the fibroids all at once.
1: And, and that practice is still happening?
0: That is getting increasingly rare. Um, it certainly is still happening when things are serious enough, um, and is post very difficult births, for instance, are, are still a thing. Uh, but what we did see historically, even as these new treatments, these less invasive or surgical treatments that involve removing the fibroids but not the uterus, even as those became more well-known, we still saw that African-American women were more likely to—, to receive a hysterectomy
1: without offering the other treatments
0: and we don't know whether they were offered those other treatments and declined or whether uh, clinicians were simply sort of making the decision to move straight to hysterectomy in african-american women and not uh, in women of other backgrounds and again that could also have to do with the severity of the disease course right so if the fibroids do get big enough then it may be that that a hysterectomy is your only option. And so it's clear that there are disparities. What's not clear is the the reasons or the background of those disparities. And so part of what we're really interested in exploring in this study is women who have been diagnosed with uterine fibroids uh, and understanding their experiences. Uh, you know, when did they learn? Why did they talk to their doctor? Why didn't they talk to their doctor? Uh, What treatments were they offered and and sort of what was their motivations uh, and their reasons for going through the treatments that they chose? And the other thing we're really interested in is obviously, you know, a hysterectomy is the removal of your ability to have children in the future. But we do increasingly have mechanisms for, you know, certain forms of fertility preservation, for instance, Uh, There's other mechanisms such as surrogacy. Or even now, increasingly, we might have the option of of full-on uterine transplant, where if you have a woman who has had a hysterectomy, you may be able to transplant a new uterus into her and allow her to have children. But these are very new, and so we're really interested in how women are feeling about their treatment, um, but also about their reproductive options in light of the fibroids and their treatment.
1: And who, for people who listening, who can be part of this study?
0: So this study is for women who live in the United States or receive most of their medical care in the United States, okay. uh, who have been diagnosed uh, with uterine transplantation and who are uh, within a certain age range. So basically, uh, if you are interested, there's a a really brief screening survey that just asks you a few questions about your diagnosis. And
1: And this is over the phone? It's online.
0: It's online, the survey. So you can just click on the link, fill out the survey.
1: We're going to be sharing here the link for... For everybody who's listening, and please share this with friends and family. Oh, yeah, please. Uh,
0: Even if you might not be eligible, please tell your friends, tell your family members. Um, You know, we were really trying to get a broad perspective. Uh, And so from all over, I've already talked to women from New York, from Tennessee.
1: um, And you guys conduct these interviews over the phone?
0: Over the phone, yeah. Okay. Uh, and so, if you know if you are interested and you do meet the criteria, which are not very stringent criteria, mm-hmm. uh, then we would call and set up an interview with you, and then one of us would do the interview with you over the phone. Uh, we are partnering with the Fibroid Foundation, uh, okay. who you may know as one of our community-based uh, partners. And uh, if you do participate, they will send you a lovely gift basket that they've put oh, together. Great. We just received them today, actually, and they are adorable. So um, I'm not sure that's why women would do the interview. But if you do, we will thank you with this lovely gift back today. And
1: how long the interview runs for?
0: It depends on the participant. So uh, we don't like to either. Just
1: a conversation.
0: Tell people to talk when they don't want to talk or stop them from talking when they want to talk. We generally estimate about an hour. but I've had conversations where, you know, we went 90 minutes because it was a, we got really in-depth into experiences, and she had more stories that she wanted to tell. I will sit here and listen as long as you have stories, and I will keep recording them.
1: And do you guys find out that this is generational sometimes?
0: I think that what we're seeing, and, and we're still in sort of early stages of the research, so I don't want to draw any conclusions, but certainly what I would say is that we are... Seeing that the younger women uh, are more likely to have conversations, right? So, what we hear them say is, I know for a fact that my mother had a hysterectomy. I know for a fact that my aunt had a hysterectomy, but she never talked about it. I didn't know why. It was never a thing. Where my mother never sat me down and said, Honey, you know, your menstrual cycles are lasting 10, 12 days. That's not normal, right? And so what we hear from younger women is that once they did figure out that this was a thing and that this was in their family, they're the ones that are going to their cousins, that are going to their sisters, that are going to the women in their friend group and their family group and saying, no, I am going to talk about this. I want to hear about this. I want you to know about this. And so what we're hoping is that 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 younger generation is uh, having a better time at sort of opening that black box and saying... I know that menstrual cycles and bleeding are not something that we always talk about a lot, but this is important. It's important for our health and it's important for our uh, reproductive choices. And so we should we should do more talking about that. And I think that that's one of the things that we hope to do with this study is is to help share those stories, not just with clinicians who might be... Uh, treating these women, but with a broader audience. So, you know, the, if women see those stories and they hear those stories and they say, wait a minute, that, that sounds like me, yeah. or that sounds like my friend or my sister, maybe I should talk to her about that.
1: Are you aware if, if there is any uh, stigma? Or, or, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure people suffer, like you mentioned, that sometimes they have to miss work. hmm
0: Yeah, and I think that that's part of a broader message that we're seeing. So, for instance, I saw a story the other day that uh, Scotland uh, was realizing that even here in 2018, you know, in a country that has health care for everyone, they still had girls missing school because they didn't have access to sanitary um, and, and other menstrual cycle materials. And so they initiated a new policy that said all the schools from now on will provide sanitary and menstrual prevent for their, their female students. And I think that that's just indicative of the fact that even now, it's still I think, hard for us to talk in a public sphere about the issue of female menstrual cycles mm-hmm. um, and that we still do have a lot of, Maybe stigma. I mean, you hear a lot, right, about the tampon tax and, and these sorts of things where um, there does seem to be a, a general reluctance to sort of acknowledge menstrual cycles and other kind of reproductive realities as just a normal part of health mm. healthcare.
1: Well, I encourage all the men who are listening to this podcast to, to talk to your loved ones and, and share this episode or information that we're sharing Because we all have a mother.
0: Yeah, well, (laughs) and, you know, if your daughter wants tampons, go buy the tampons. Like, don't be embarrassed. It's 2018. You can go buy some tampons.
1: Yeah. Megan, anything else that we can share about this study? We're going to be sharing the link where people can take the small survey and then get in touch with you guys, with your team. Mm -hmm. Anything else that would you like to share?
0: No, I think I would just, we would really encourage uh, everybody to get in touch. It, it isn't, we will know your name because we need to know where to send your gift basket, but it's completely confidential. Um, as I was joking earlier, we're not sharing these recordings with the public. This is entirely done as a protected research study in the Mayo Clinic system. So if you're concerned about that stigma... People
1: will find out about the results of the study?
0: So the results will be published in the okay. literature uh, and then also disseminated through our partners, like the Fibroid Foundation and okay. the Community Research Board. So, uh but again, there's no names in that there's no identities in that, really. Our goal is to to share the stories, but to keep the privacy and and the um the trust of the people mm-hmm. who participate
1: and the most important the more that we participate in research, future generations will benefit from it. I so think that's
0: true, and I think for every woman you know who tells me I didn't even know this was a thing until I was twenty five or something like that. You know, we really hope that this study, and, and by not just recruiting for this study, but then disseminating the results of the study, we hope to uh, encourage more of those conversations, right, to, to have yeah. more of those women at an earlier age talk to their gynecologist and say, you know, what should I be looking out for? Is this normal?
1: Okay. Well, Megan, thank you for stopping by today here at the Community Board Podcast, and I want to invite you and all our friends to follow us on Facebook on their community board, also on Twitter on their community board. You can find us and listen to other episodes on their community board podcast on iTunes, and also in SoundCloud. You can find us on their community board podcast. And follow us, give us a like, share this episode, and stay connected to your family and friends.
0: All right, thank you, Megan. Thanks, Miguel. All right, bye-bye. What's going on this weekend? The last time we met, we talked to...
1: Well, last time I talked to the people from downtown.
0: What was the last movie you went to? Miguel, what's new new in the community? Have you gotten any feedback about the Twitter feed? First of
1: all, for the people who contact us on Twitter...
0: ...about a certain research... Can you tell me more?
1: Well, depends who you talk to, if you talk to the people from the board.
0: Why did the yogurt go to the art museum? Did you see in the news? To get more culture.